1: Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This is your host, Dan Nexon. In this episode, I interview Alistair Reynolds, a multiple award-winning and nominated author. who's probably best known for his Revelation Space series, which begins with Revelation Space. He is uh, going to be talking about his new book, Blue Remembered Earth, which has been generating a lot of buzz and was even the subject of a short discussion on our first podcast with Ken MacLeod. Hi, this is Dan Nexon, and I am talking to Alistair Reynolds. Are you... Alistair, are you there? I am indeed, Dan. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a great pleasure. Um, I thought that we would start out, as uh, I always do, uh, with your perhaps telling our readers a bit about yourself and your background.
0: Well, I'm a 46-year-old science fiction writer living in Wales. I was born in Wales originally uh, in, in 1966, my family, uh, I have some strong Welsh roots, but my family moved down to uh, Cornwall in England when I was fairly small. So I spent my formative years in that part of the world. And then we moved back to Wales uh, probably when I was about eight eight years old. I, I, don't, I never have had a strong Welsh accent, which is something that always throws people when they meet me. But uh, that's largely because I was, my formative years were spent in England. Then as soon as I was old enough, I left Wales. I went off and got an education. And I I was um, pretty clear in my mind from, I think about the age of 14, that I wanted to study astronomy or science or some some area of science. Uh, And that's what I ended up doing. And I went away uh, to Newcastle and I got a degree in physics. And that led on to uh, a doctorate in astronomy, which I did in Scotland. And then I ended up working abroad. But in, across that whole period, I'd also been basically getting more and more into science fiction and starting to write it. From a very early age, I was always making up stories. Um, and one of my very earliest memories, actually, is going uh, to being taken to the cinema when, when we lived in Cornwall. And my father took me to see a double bill of uh, two James Bond films. It was from Russia with Love and then goldfinger and i remember sitting through from russia with love probably about the age of six just being completely bored out of my mind by this film because there was nothing nothing in it particularly to to engage the imagination of a six-year-old but then goldfinger came on and i thought it was the most amazing awesome thing i'd ever seen in my life i mean there were there were cars with gadgets coming out of the wheels there were lasers um it it was it was amazing and i came home from that with my mind rewired i think and i remember I, i went into school the day after and started drawing these uh, illustrations and stories, all, all sort of uh, related to what I remember from Goldfinger. I mean, years later, I saw uh, um, From Russia with Love, and it's it's clearly the superior film, but it doesn't uh, doesn't really work on that level when you when you're six years old. So, yeah, so I started writing stories from a very early age, and then I I kind of I suppose started writing longer and longer stories, and I got. A measure of encouragement from teachers, they, they would always sort of pat me on the back and say, that's a very nice story, Alistair. Um, so I, I saw no no incentive to stop writing. And I just kept on writing and writing through my, uh, writing to my teens and just writing longer and longer things. And then I wrote a couple of novels when I was a teenager. And So this was all going on in in the background, as it were, when I was also studying and, and working towards uh, getting an education. But I always had it in mind that I would become a published science fiction writer at some point. I had no plans beyond that. I uh, certainly didn't envisage a career. I had no clear idea that there was such a thing as a a career in science fiction. I just wanted to write science fiction and and get it out there. And that's basically what happened. It took a long time, but I eventually broke into magazine publishing. Uh, In in the late 80s, I started selling stories to the British science fiction magazine Interzone. I was working in Scotland at the time, just starting my Ph.D., And in in sort of spare hours here and there, often lunchtimes, I would either uh, sit and hammer away at a typewriter or I would go and find a a word processor or or, um, a computer that someone wasn't using, and I would try and sort of write a bit of science fiction on it. And that's basically how it started, and I just kept on doing that. One sale led to another, and then there were the usual setbacks and and periods where you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. But I just kept on and eventually wrote a novel. And again, after a period of time, I was able to sell that. And everything has sort of followed from that, really. I'm I'm now writing full-time, which, again, is something I never expected to happen. But I'm in a very fortunate position to to be doing that now and uh, enjoying it.
1: So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about uh, is how your background as a scientist shapes your speculative fiction. I mean, one of the things that I... Uh, see and hear reading about and talking to uh, science fiction authors is the diversity of uh, trajectories into the genre now, right? You have people who come at it from a literary tradition or an MFA tradition. You have people who are uh, primarily fans. Uh, And then you have people like ourselves who have a very strong scientific background. And how has that informed the way that you approach the genre? It's a very good question.
0: and It's one that I'm always trying to take take a step back, if you were, and look at my own fiction and sort of try and gauge to what extent it's shaped and, and influenced by my background as a scientist. But I really can't can't say, because my interest in science and science fiction, they, they really do go right back into my childhood. And it's very really hard for me to sort of disentangle those two threads and say which one came first. You know, a lot of the science fiction that really pushed the right buttons for me when I was growing up was kind of the sort of, harder edge of it i suppose um science fiction writers like asimov and clark who were sort of at least scientifically um or schooled in science and had a a sort of respect for for the science um and i kind of sort of steeped myself in that stuff as i was growing up i I, I really struggle with it because when i was a working scientist um particularly in the last sort of 10 years of my career i was working at european space agency in holland and I did a, a lot of different uh, jobs. I worked on a lot of different projects. And most of them were very, very interesting in, in, in the sense that they were challenging little sort of problems or or projects that I was engaged with that were, that were intellectually stimulating. But almost none of them were anything that you, you, you know, in, in your right mind, you would never think of them as something that you that would make good fiction. And I was involved in a project for, for many years that uh, had to do with, um, making a a camera work, basically. I was part of a team that was involved in the development of a prototype optical camera, which would um, ultimately, it might have flown in space. But in the sort of of near term, it was going to be plugged into the back of ground-based telescopes, and they were going to do science with this. And I went around uh, with the the team involved in this camera. We went to um, telescopes in the Canary Islands, did observations on it. And I was... I was part of the team um, kind of trying to get some real science out of this thing. So I wrote the software that took the raw data um, in a very sort of obscure format and tried to sort of massage it in a way that you actually got some science out of the end. And it was really interesting because you were dealing with Questions of um, microsecond uh, time tagging accuracy on photons and uh, energy calibration and spatial calibration, but all of it really boring to anyone who wasn't sort of involved in that area of astrophysics. And, you know, I, I don't, there was never a point where I was working on an instrument where I thought, oh, this would be a good idea for a science fiction story. And all the all the ideas that I think I um, made the best use of as a writer were things that i that had caught my eye in. I would say the popular press, if you like. Uh, I might be reading New Scientist and I, I sort of stumble on an idea or a story that seems to sort of spark a little uh, um, imaginative, um, set off an imaginative spark, actually, and that would then lead me down a, a process where I might end up with a story. But it would never be something that came from my work as such. I suppose the only um, thing that I took away from science that might might sort of lend some colour to my fiction would be one an understanding of how science actually works on a day-to-day level because if you're working in laboratories you see you see science being done all the time you understand that it's you know a very very human enterprise scientists are people they make mistakes they just get on with it they're not sort of um evil geniuses trying to take over the world. most scientists are just worried about getting um you know getting the next budget uh, the next grant or or getting the next job application sorted out uh, so that was all useful and I got an insight into sort of office politics and how how something like a a, a large space agency functions but all of that was kind of secondary to the actual um the scientific content itself and I to this day I still get my best ideas just from uh, basically just keeping my eyes and ears open and and being being ready to let ideas land on me and keeping up with the popular press so I read um, New Scientist every week I read Scientific American I watch scientific documentaries on television and you just let it all soak down into you and over time, you, you know, you, you hope that there are going to be these sort of weird moments where you, you sort of link things together in a way that hopefully no one has done before. And, you, and, uh, you know, so, someone said recently, you know, the, um, the, the the way to write science fiction is to try and think of the one story in the world that only you could write. And when when, when that, something like that happens, where you sort of see a connection between two, two areas, think, I'm the only person who could ever have seen that. That's a magic moment, and it's one of the... Um, One of the things that gets me through the long hours of writing is those uh, those little flashes where you (laughs) you see a connection between things.
1: It's funny, as you're talking, I can think about uh, a lot of ways in which you say that the the unique perspective that you describe, or at least the special perspective you describe, informs uh, uh, specific events or moments in uh, Blue Remembered Earth. But before we get into that book, uh, I was hoping you might talk uh, a bit about the arc of your Writing and your corpus of work because you obviously have an extensive corpus of work as you've alluded to a number of uh, very successful uh, and very acclaimed uh, novels under your belt already before uh, this new trilogy that's kicked off with uh, with Blue Remembered Earth.
0: Well, I've been. I think sometimes people are a bit surprised when they, they find out I've been writing for as long as I have because I've been publishing. I mean, science fiction I've been paid for now for 23 years, I think. I got my first cheque in 1989, which was uh, amazingly long time ago. And I've been basically just writing steadily ever since. And I, I was working on um, the sort of early drafts of Revelation Space, actually as far back as the 80s. And then, in the, you know, I sort of put it aside and then came back to it in in the early 90s. I think in 1992 I started working seriously on the book that would become Revelation Space. And I finished it in 94, again, put it aside, and came back to it a couple of years later. I had a period of unemployment, which was pretty uh, miserable at the time, but it was actually really useful because it gave me the chance to actually dust that novel off, knock it into some kind of shape, and actually submit it. And I've just been writing steadily ever since. So I have produced quite a large body of work. I'm always trying to find that sweet spot between being prolific and being over prolific, I and mean, I think you can you can overproduce as much as you can underproduce. Uh, I mean, as a as someone who, who consumes uh, art and literature and music, I am o- often drawn to artists who are prolific. I mean, I particularly admire Neil Young, who's just just had this amazing or sustained this amazing output of work over almost 50 years and i you know i, I, I will readily accept that not everything that neil young puts out is is, is perfectly formed or, or perfectly polished but i but i enjoy the fact that there's always a new neil young album uh, imminent um, but at the same time i also like bruce springsteen who's not sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum he, he often takes in all, you know you know enormously long time between releases so I'm always trying to balance that. But I am, I am basically prolific. Um, I've written um, more or less a novel a year since 2000. And I've tried, um, it, uh, the, for me, writing short fiction was not a stepping stone into getting a, a book deal. It's a thing unto its own right that I, I genuinely enjoy. And I'm always a little bit disappointed at the end of the year if I haven't written all that much short fiction. So I was trying to carve out a bit of time to write, write some short stories. And if people offer me the opportunity to write a short story, I'll, I'll jump on it. And I can often, I mean, if you if you, you talk about an arc and I look over my career, there's no real long-term planning going on there. It's just, uh, you know, I, I never really think more than one book ahead. But over time, you have these little um, I suppose impulses that you, you think, well, I actually wouldn't mind going off in that direction maybe at some point. And then what I will often do is maybe just try a short story that kind of, sort of nudges things slightly in a different direction, see how I get on with that. And then if, if that feels like um, a successful experiment, then, I'll, then I will follow it maybe a year or two later with a novel. And I did that with, um, I think, what, long before I wrote House of Sons, I'd written a... Um, a relatively long piece called Thousandth Night, which hasn't been particularly well. Um, it, 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 it's a, bit, a little bit difficult to get hold of, that story, but I, but I I, wrote it and I was pleased with it, and it felt at the time like I was pushing in a slightly different direction. It was consciously um, slightly more optimistic in tone. It was definitely brighter. It was more sort of far future uh orientated than anything i'd done before and i felt well that's a direction i want to push down in a in a book or two um once I get whatever commitments I had at the time out of the way. So that's what I did. In a few years, I came back to that story. And In fact, it, it, again, it, little random events can sort of push you in a different direction. I had an email from a fan who said, um, have you ever thought about going back to that universe and making a novel of it? I thought, "Yeah, that's a damn good idea. And in fact, I did write. I did enjoy writing that story. So there you go. I'll write a novel in that universe. And that became House of Sons. And that, um, in turn, I suppose, playing around with that book, which was, optimistic in tone but very far future, started me thinking about uh, um, something that's much more closer to home, much more more, um, near future in its setting, but which also has something of the same, um, I suppose, exuberance to it. And that, that I suppose, ultimately became Blue Remembered Earth. But as I say, there is no real long-term plan. I mean, at the moment, I know that the next book is the uh, the sequel to Blue Remembered Earth and the one after that will be the sequel to the sequel. But that's about as, as long-term as it gets in terms of my planning. I certainly don't um, I don't have some, uh, some elaborate um, arc of of, you know, of my career sort of mapped out. I just basically go where the wind blows. And, um, I mean, the book I'm writing at the moment is um, probably a little bit darker than Blue Remembered Earth. But that, again, I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking I must write a, utopian, a dystopian sort of... Uh, Novel at some point. Yes, yeah, so I just sort of basically follow my nose, and I don't sort of sweat these things too much. I just sort of go where where it feels most interesting at the time. And often the the I, I often say this actually that the book that I'm working on is as much a reaction to the last book as anything else. It's it's often like, well, I've done this, I want to do something really really different for the next book. Um, I mean, particularly with uh, Terminal World, which was the the book before last. I'd written, I think. Three um, preceding books before that were all essentially space operas of one colour or another, and they all had lots of spaceships in them and different planets. And I thought, well, I really want to get away from that for a book. Uh, I want to do a story which is set, in, set entirely on one planet where there's lots of scenery and no spaceships. <laughs> so that was uh, that was Blue Mode Earth, a, a, a sort of a conscious reaction to what I'd been writing before. So it's often it's often as trivial as that. Simply, um, um, well, I've done this now. So I want to do something different.
1: So what are the basics that readers should know or interested readers should know about Blue Remembered Earth?
0: Well, I hope that it feels like a departure for me in some respects. It's um, it, I felt that I was almost, almost trying to press a sort of big reset button on my career when I started writing that book, and that I had, I suppose i become uncomfortable. I mean, this goes back a long, long time. It goes back as far as Century Rain, in fact, where I felt that... The incorporation of thriller elements, um, action, adventure storylines, was not something I wanted to do for the rest of my career. I mean, it can be it can be enormously fun, and I I, w- I would never forsake that and say I'm never going to write a story um, where where you have sort of people shooting at each other again. But I definitely wanted to get away from that for, at some point. And I I was I mean there were sort of three or four things that came together. One was a sense that type of science fiction that I enjoyed a lot when I was growing up, um, sort of typified by, say, the the novels of Clark, um, the the sort of mid-period novels of of R.C. Clark, where um, things are very, very exciting. I mean, you have a book like Rendezvous Rama, which I remember just being absolutely mesmerized by when I was reading it as a kid. But there are no overt through elements in the story, it's essentially a, a novel about the methodical exploration of the unknown. And I thought, well, that's something that it can be. If it's done well, it can be a really effective motor for the story. It can be as uh, as compelling a read as any sort of um, murder mystery or suspense uh, plot, if if it's done well. And well, that's the that's the catch. You have to do it well. How well I did it in Blue Remembered Earth, I don't know. I and mean, I'm still sort of trying to sort of piece that one together. But I wanted to get away from the um, you know a, a melodramatic plot structure, I also wanted to avoid any i particularly wanted to get away from sort of large scale violence. I wanted to write a few in which there wasn't there were not endless wars and militarism and things blowing up and you know things do blow up in the book, but I think it's at a at a much sort of quieter level than, than anything i've done before so i would you know, I, I felt that it was a change of direction for me, but I hope that the things that people like in my fiction, they'll sort of still find those things there. I mean, I was sort of as excited by it when I was writing it as I had been by anything else. But it did feel – I hesitate to say the word adult, but it felt like a slightly more adult novel than something like uh, Revelation Space, which is – at times, the action in Revelation Space is quite cartoonish, and that was p- perhaps the, the intention at the time. But I, I certainly felt like I wanted to get away from that for, for a book or two. And the other, the other sort of um, sort of things that fed into Blue Remote Earth were, were sort of time and and um, it was it was simply the right time to start a book like that. I had been in America uh, in 2008 and had had a really good opportunity to visit the Kennedy Space Center. I went back a couple of times after that, and I was lucky enough to see two space shuttle launches um, really near the end of the space shuttle program. And I, I, I mean, all of, I've always been a fan of space exploration anyway. That's sort of obvious. But this definitely rekindled that um, basic delight in, in space exploration and, and a real sense of... Achievement. I mean, I was I, in, in 2009, it was the anniversary of the Apollo landings. I went back and I read a few books about the, the program and we really got a, a deeper appreciation for what a, an amazing technological achievement that was in terms of the, the complexity of the program, the risks. The, the, the astonishing management of thousands of different people all, all sort of pushing in the same direction. And, and right at the top of that pyramid, you've got, you know, three incredibly brave astronauts on top of a rocket. And I, I just came away from that with a real renewed sense of enthusiasm and awe, in fact, from the idea of space travel. And I thought, well, it's, it's not that I've not seen that in science fiction lately, but I felt that it certainly had been absent from my science fiction and I wanted to get that back, back into it, and it seemed that the, the, the sort of obvious way to do it seemed to be to to, to bring the, the scope of the novel closer to home in terms of the timeline and to write about real space exploration as it might happen, not not as it might happen if we invent the warp drive, but as it might happen given what we what we know we can do now in terms of reasonable extrapolation of technologies. Uh, so that was in the mix. And then the other thing which I've spoken of at length is that I was... Uh, and still am, in fact, a, a big fan of African music, and I've been listening to a lot of it over a short period of time. And a, a number of, I so saw there were sort of moments where it began to dawn on me that I wouldn't mind developing the idea of a future in which Africa was the, the sort of main uh, technological power. I certainly wanted to give these books a different angle. Um, I wanted them something in them that would put them slightly outside of the. Uh, the established canon of of SF novels about space exploration, if you like. And I I was certainly receptive to the idea that Africa might be the, um, you know, the sort of main, the global powerhouse in 100 or 200 years. Uh, It seemed completely reasonable to me. I had not seen it done uh, in science fiction before, so it, it, that was exciting. And it also gave me an excuse just to keep listening to all that great music, and that, that was a, a win-win situation for me, and I just kept listening to uh, particularly West African music, although the the bulk of the action in the book, that, I mean, not a, by no means the whole novel is set on Earth anyway, and uh, of the bits set on Earth, only a small, small num- number of them actually take place in Africa. But the... Um, the, the, the sort of the characters in the book originate from East Africa, but it was the sort of the seed of the West African music that really made me think about uh, um, going in that direction. And was, there was there was one particular piece of music, in fact, which I'm, I'm struggling to remember the name of now, but it was by a musician called Geoffrey Oriema, who I um, I think I name check in the acknowledgements to the book. But it sort of of planted a strong mental image in my mind of a a woman on a spaceship. uh, And she's somewhere in the universe. She's a long way from home. And she's African. And she's thinking back to this planet that she probably won't ever return to. And, I mean, often novels can come from just a single image like that. Who is this character? What's she doing? Why is she on the ship? Why does she look so worried? What what sort of... um, (laughs) What terrible decision is she about to make? And that, that sort of fed into it. And in fact, that, that character um, doesn't even appear in the first novel. She turns out to be a character in the second novel, which I didn't know at the time. But it's, it's things like that, little random pushes and squirms that will, that will send me in a, in a particular direction.
1: You should probably walk our listeners a little bit more through um, the kind of basic setup and you know, not... Spoiler range plot, but basic plot elements of Blue Remembered Earth. So it's set a few hundred years uh, in the future. Uh, Is that correct? You can.
0: Yes, it's set. Well, I set it. um, It's often the case for me. I start writing things, and I have sort of dates in mind, and then I uh, I usually end up bringing them a bit closer than they are in the first draft. And I think it started. I started writing it. It was sort of three hundred years in the future, but uh, I I get bogged down in things like what do the characters wear? What you know how and. it's always much easier for me if I can bring it a bit closer, because then you can sort of well, Maybe they still wear t-shirts and jeans, and I can just sort of get on with the story. and <laughs> Not worry too much about about things like that. Um, so yeah, I set it 150 years in the future, which was as, as close as I felt I could reasonably set it because I needed time for the backstory. I mean, it wasn't the the, the problem was not that um, Africa becomes the, the the dominant sort of um, technology, the, the dominant technological powerhouse at this time. I'm fully capable of believing that that could happen in a hundred years but I also I did need time for my characters and their relatives to get up to a certain number of things before the sort of motor of the story could kick in and I sort of sat down and worked it out and thought well yeah it can't the action can't really take place before around about the middle of the 22nd century. So that's when the book starts, uh, 2162, I think. And so it starts, it's a a kind of um, family uh, drama and that's a theme that continues through into the subsequent books and that we're following members of one family, this African family, the Kenya family, who are at the start of Blue Remembered Earth, they're established as a very powerful, wealthy family with their fingers in lots of, technological pies, particularly um, areas related to space exploration and space entrepreneurialism. So I was thinking, you know, sort of like Elon Musk or Bill Gates, say, in 150 years, except that it's an African family this time. And they have sort of controlling stakes in some of the the key technologies for access to, to, to Earth orbit and, and travel around the solar system. So they've got lots of money. And all, all the sort of the key members of the family, all they really want to do is make more money by sort of mining more things in the solar system and planting more flags on things. But the, um, the two protagonists of the novel, are two, two siblings of near, near equal age, um, Sunday and Jeffrey. And they've both basically turned their back on the family uh, business um to to sort of degrees of disgust from the rest of the family and sunday she's gone to to live in this sort of quasi anarchic commune on the moon where they practice a, a sort of um, you know everywhere else lives in this sort of society which is highly um surveilled and where you can 't really breathe without it being sort of picked up and becoming a matter of public record so sunday lives in 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 this little um um, enclave on the moon, where they go the op- exactly the opposite way, where they, they sort of got rid of all, all that sort of surveillance uh, sort of stuff. And she's an artist; she's a struggling artist. And her brother, who's remained behind in Africa, has turned his attention on to the study of elephants. And I, I sort of homed in pretty early on the idea that elephants were going to be a plot plot element, but they became progressively more important to the story as I got into the writing of the book. And what what essentially happens is that Jeffrey and Sunday are dragged into a family conspiracy of which they want no part, but they they eventually find themselves left with little choice but to investigate a mystery that's left behind by the death of their grandmother, who is this um, forbidding figure, Eunice Akinia. She's the the woman who created the, the family fortune, she's an early space explorer, she's born, according to the internal timeline of the book, she's born in 2030, so she's born very close to the present day, she's one of the first people to land on Mars, and she goes off and sort of plants flags all over the solar system, makes loads of money, but then something happens to her, and she enters um, a kind of, um, she, she goes in, in into, becomes a recluse, she, she enters a period where she has no direct contact with the family or the rest of the human race. She basically just locks herself away in the space station for the rest of her life. And then she dies, and after her death, uh, a loose end comes to light that sort of hints that she may have got up to something earlier in her life that's not a matter of public record. And it's uh, it's the, the siblings then, Sunday and Jeffrey, who get dragged into figuring out what, ex- what exactly their, their grandmother had gone up to. Why has she buried something on the moon? And this then leads on to something else. I mean, some like people said it's a, it's a treasure hunt plot. It's like the Da Vinci Code. I suppose there, there, there are elements of truth to that. It seemed um, I wanted a, uh, a storyline that would give me justification for having my characters travel around the solar system. And I also liked the idea that although the society in which they lived is relatively benign, it's relatively peaceful, there's no war, there's little violence. Nonetheless, there are things left over floating around the solar system, and even on Earth, there are sort of nasty booby traps left over from less enlightened times that you have to sort of be on your guard about. And that that seemed to me a way to get some real sort of um, peril into the story without, without necessarily violating the terms of my imagined universe. So it's, it's a... On one level, it's still a bit of an action story, even though I said I was trying to get away from all that, but the action is quite, I think, quite dialed down, quite muted, and it's primarily a story about family responsibility, I think. And then I, I tried not to make anyone in it uh, a cartoon villain. There, there, are, there are opposing figures in the family, but we, we find out that they're not... Um, they're not completely um, evil-hearted capitalists. They do have some humanity in them. And various events ensue, and at the end of the book, we have, um, I would say, a sort of springboard into the next novel, which then picks up the the thread of the Akinya family, but in fact from the point of view of the descendant of Sunday. So we're, we're now following Sunday's daughter uh, 200 years into her life. So it's quite a sort of leap forward then from, from the events of Blue Remembered Earth.
1: Now, you've already used this term a great deal to describe the novel, particularly in comparison to your earlier work, and it's one that I think is, if you read the critical uh, reviews online, and in uh, magazines, it's the term that everybody uses, right, which is that this is an optimistic novel. Um, Yes. (laughs) uh, You must be getting sick of hearing that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I kind of set myself up for it, and I'm not... I'm not really surprised because if you look at I mean, you don't have to be very optimistic in science fiction to look optimistic these days. I mean, if you look at the sort of, you know, your typical science fiction novel or film, for that matter, uh, the the sort of default, uh, you know, the mixing desk, everything's sort of pushed as far as dark as possible, isn't it? You know, everything's post-apocalyptic or or post-climate crash or uh, post-peak oil. Everything's gone to hell in a handcart. And... I, I want more from science fiction than one vision of the future. I don't, I'm not saying that I don't think that there are tough times ahead, or that we should shirk these responsibilities. But when I was growing up, science fiction was not—it um, was not one thing. It was a very sort of multicolored, multivalent thing that you could sort of pick and choose from. And, you, and you, you, if you felt like reading something that was a bit more upbeat, you could go and read that, or you could go and read something gloomy if that was what you, where your sort of preferences were. But I, I think, particularly with realistic, uh, realistically toned science fiction set in the future, there is a real uh, that there has been uh, a real absence of I mean, not even optimistic, but not even not even non-pessimistic science fiction. I think, and I, I, I was. Um, involved um, a few years ago peripherally in a debate within science fiction circles about optimism versus pessimism, utopianism versus dystopianism. And out of that, there came a number of initiatives. One of them was the Shine Anthology, which was a collection of stories edited by a friend of mine, I should say, full disclaimer, uh, a Dutch friend of mine, Jetser de Vries. He wanted to basically push the... um, Push the needle a little bit in the other direction. So he set out um, a call for science fiction stories that would be set on a set in the next 50 years, would not involve magic technology, there would not be uh, a singularity, there would not be aliens coming down and offering us a solution to all our problems. He wanted sort of nuts and bolts, gritty, um, realistically toned science fiction stories that nonetheless offered, um, should we say, plausibly positive solutions to existing problems and i i I wrote a story for yet that to some extent didn't quite um engage with the with with what he really wanted but it got me thinking a lot about optimism within science fiction and i i was again to go back to clark i was thinking well you know all those clark novels of the uh of of the 50s 60s and 70s they, they were all futures that one one wouldn't would not mind living in at all. They were not grim, dark, dystopian futures by any means. There was no reason why one wouldn't choose to live in an Arthur C. Clarke future. And I grew up as a a child of the 60s and 70s, I grew up with the uh, television series of Gerry Anderson, who maybe not as well known in the States, but I think some of his his, um, puppet shows did make it over to, to America made uh, you know, an enormous string of um, children's television shows, mainly, mainly with puppets, it has to be said. You have to get the puppets out of the way first. But, uh, they, they, I mean, if you look at the, the, the sort of absolutely iconic Jerry Anderson series was Thunderbirds, which was set in the 21st century, set in uh, 2065, it was a future in which everything that was present in the, in the 20th century was still there in the future but it was it was a livable future they had gadgets they had um, technology but they also had global government they had world police they had uh, no no sort of large scale wars i mean you know as a kid I, I i really really wanted to live in the universe of thunderbirds and i still do <laughs> to some extent but science fiction has not been <sighs> I, I would say it's been consciously avoiding the depiction of uh, reasonably optimistic futures for, for decades, and I wanted to do something that was a step in the other direction with Blue Remembered Earth. So I, I, I wanted to write a book that felt as if it was a plausible, uh, a, a plausible extrapolation from current trends. So I didn't want to um, ignore things like climate change. I didn't want to uh, have a ridiculously sunny view of human nature so there are there is still um local warfare does happen in the in the universe of Blue remote earth but it's 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 policed and contained um and I, i just wanted to sort of get things get as much into the mix as possible but at the same time not not to sort of adopt this sort of pointlessly you know simply not to make things dark simply for the sake of it i suppose does that
1: make sense no, it does make sense. And I actually found, uh, the, I found Blue Remembered Earth, I guess, as you say, it's optimistic when compared to the glut of dystopian uh, literature that's out there. But I found it more reflective than optimistic. And, and maybe I hope we can come back to that in a second. But while we are on the subject of this debate that's been going on in science fiction circles about whether or not science fiction ought to present... Futures that we want to live in, or futures that uh, we can grasp for, right, ought to have a kind of utopian or at least non-dystopian vision. Uh, I was curious about your sense of, of why that is. I mean, the standard argument I think you see when this issue gets covered in the time, you know, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, or in kind of when it breaks into extra genre discussions is oh well we live in an era where everybody's worried about climate change and terrorism uh and so and is uncertain and unhappy and we just went through the great recession and all that stuff although this trend clearly predates the great recession so there's a kind of a notion oh it's just the kind of the zeitgeist and science fiction is responding to that zeitgeist Uh, but it sounds to me like you're hinting that there's a different story out there that has to do with the internal dynamics of the genre itself and those who write in it
0: It's a very very complex picture at any one time. I mean, I just had um, a very uh, interesting discussion yesterday on Twitter, uh, you know, a 140-character discussion about this very issue. And someone um, had had made the opinion that um, science fiction as it stands today as literary science fiction stands today there's a sort of abdication of interest in the future and and it's not hard to see why that might be the case i mean if you look at um your typical award shortlist in science fiction or your typical anthology of the year's best science fiction there's an awful lot of backward looking science fiction there's science fiction that Shirks any engagement with the future. There, there are stories that are set in sort of uh, gaslit Victorian alternate realities. That are stories that that refer back to earlier science fiction stories in a in a you know a very clever but at the same time facile way and. This, you know, you can often read hundreds of stories, hundreds, but you'll 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 sit and read many stories in succession before you hit on one that actually seems to be engaged with the future. And people say, well, it is it is because we live in these treacherously uncertain times; it's it's impossible to get a handle on where things are going. And I am a little bit sceptical about that because um, people people will say, well, you know, we 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 we, we can't see the the. the our our way through the next 20 years. Well, people couldn't see the way through the 1930s. That was an incredibly uncertain time with the sort of specter of fascism looming, possibility of global war. People didn't know which way to turn then. And then people will say, well, we don't know... um, Technological change is is happening so quickly now that uh, science fiction is is obsolete before you finish writing it. To which I say, well, if you look at the the sort of pace of technological change between, say, 1850 and 1950 was was, was astonishing. You know, you have the first transatlantic telegraph cable by the middle of the 19th century, a piece of global telecoms infrastructure already in place. Then you've got, uh, you know, you've got wireless and television in the early 20th century. You've got powered flight and then you've got the, you know, the development of nuclear power, the, the, the first glimmerings of the atomic age, even before World War II. So things have always been moving quickly. And there are yes, there are sort of spurts and, 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 and moments where it seems to be going quicker. It's a bit like punctuated equilibrium and evolution. You get these uh, long periods where things don't move as quickly, and then there's little catch-up moments. But I don't think we're living in particularly... Privileged times, in that sense. I think that the you know, from, from the perspective of twenty years from now, people will look back to the, to twenty twelve and say, "What were those guys worrying about? They didn't have a clue. <laughs> Things weren't weren't accelerating." Now, we, we we people in twenty thirty two, we know what it's really like. But I so I, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit sceptical about all those arguments, and I think uh, why why is there this lack of engagement with the future in science fiction? I I don't know. I mean, for me, the only thing that really gets me out of bed in the morning uh, and continues to excite me about science fiction is the fact that it is this fantastic tool for engaging with the future. It's um, a toolkit for thinking about the future. As I've said, if you you look at the totality of science fiction, any, any given science fiction work is likely to be a very, very poor predictor of the future. I mean, science fiction is notoriously bad at uh, predicting the future, but if you look at the totality of science fiction, the picture becomes a little bit less, less gloomy. And in fact, uh, you know, many many things were anticipated in science fiction. People say, oh, well, science fiction didn't predict the internet or, or home computing, except for that one story um, by Murray Leinster in 1941 or whatever. Well, yeah, but that's the point. He got it right. One story got it right. So I I, I tend to think of science fiction as a sort of huge collective thought experiment. Probing not the future, but the space of all possible futures, and for me, that's that's what it's all about. I mean, I, I'm just constantly fascinated and absorbed by the idea of what the future holds for us, what what lies in store, and and I can't. I mean, having the sort of tools of science fiction at your disposal, not wanting to think seriously about the future seems to me a very odd thing. It's like being given. Uh, you know, uh, an electric guitar and and not wanting to make a noise on it.
1: It's interesting that you should point back to the uh, end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, which is, of course, uh, for many uh, people who study international change or historical change or development of technology, et cetera, et cetera, this is the period in which the great acceleration begins, right? The great divergence in which the industrial revolution sets Europe on its course to temporary global, you know, global dominance, in which we start to get, you know, a kind of futurist sensibility uh, in uh, culture uh, and in what we have, the origins of modern science fiction, all of that. So I'm with you, Uh, when you say that the pace of change now is not necessarily any faster than the pace of change of that period. I mean, I think that the modern social sciences developed in the 19th century around this question, even prior to the late 19th century of, you know, why is it that the world we live in now looks really, really different than the world of our grandparents' generation, right? The passing of the ancien regime and what is this thing called modernity. Yeah, I mean, you
0: only have to look at the the sort of Things that H.G. Wells saw in his lifetime. I mean, Wells lived into the Atomic Age and the, the era of the jet airliner. And we, I think we often forget that. I mean, we see this sort of fusty and Victorian figure. And we forget that he lived for another 50 years. I mean, he, he saw, the you know, the, 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 the post-World War II era.
1: And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, what you're... So if we sort of think about that, and we think about this comparison where well, the rate of change now may not be any more rapid uh, than uh, what uh, people a century ago were experiencing. It may in some ways be less rapid for people living in the advanced industrialized world. Um, we could debate that, right? It's all kind of experiential. And part of our sense of how fast it is is a sense of how we narrate it, uh, the way in which science fiction yeah. is then complicit in our understanding of our rate of change. Uh, but all that being said, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about Blue Remembered Earth is that you take us through, given the timeline and given the way that you, you, pl- you seem to have plotted out your near future history, This is really, in some respects, a coda for this period that begins in the the late 19th century, right? It's a coda for uh, the effects on global climate of uh, industrialization and the carbon era, right? It's a coda for the Great Divergence, because you've now taken us to the period of the Great Convergence, which is what we seem to be witnessing now, the catch-up of the developed world, Right, its rapid growth into being uh, economic and technological powers, the thing which has not yet reached Africa the way it's reached Asia, but which I think, it's pl- as you say, is plausible that it would reach Africa as well. And you sort of imagine, okay, well, what would life look like once we've come through that transformation and, and we're on the brink of the next? Yes.
0: Um, I mean, I, when I started writing uh, Blue Remember Earth, I had, obviously, if you're going to set a novel in, the middle of the 22nd century, you do have to come down on one side of the fence or the other in terms of uh, your, your treatment of, of climate change. And my my take on it, I mean, I'm broadly speaking um, a believer in climate change, but I follow the literature. Uh, I mean, I believe that the climate is changing. I also believe that the, the cause of the change is, is human industrial activity. But I, I follow the literature and I try to have an open mind on it, and I'm prepared to accept that... Um, You know, scientists are fallible at times and groupthink is an issue. But if I had to put my money on it, I I would say that um, we we really are altering the climate. But I had to to obviously decide to to what level I was going to uh, embed that into the the imagined world of Blue Emeritaire. So I basically took, um, there was an issue of New Scientist where they presented various extrapolations of what the world would look like in 2100 under various climate change scenarios. So I basically said, well, well, to hell with it. I'll just take the worst possible scenario and uh, you know, project the maximum rate of, uh, of sea level rise, the maximum um, the decline of forests in, in, in Central Africa, um, aridification, movement of people. I'll, I'll assume things go as about, as, about as badly as we can imagine them, short of... Extinction. But I will posit that these characters live through these events over a time scale of decades and they become normalized. Uh, Their their world uh, feels completely normal to them. It doesn't feel post apocalyptic. It doesn't feel dystopian. And I think that's the way it would be. I mean, once you get through the sort of pain barrier of the sort of, um, you know, not to trivialize it, but the, you know, the. The, the hardship and misery of relocation and the suffering that would come from you know, scarcity of resources. Things will normalise. Things always normalise. And I think someone, someone who, who would be transplanted into 2012 from say 1862 would would find many things about our present world would seem terribly dystopian to them. They would find them actually appalling and difficult to comprehend, and they would find it un- unbelievable that we accepted these things as, as norm- absolutely normal. But of course we do. We, we, we've lived through change over relatively long timescales, and, and we accept it as the way things are. We, you know, as for many decades, we accepted the fact that uh, the world might end at any point due to global thermonuclear war, um, which is, when you think about it, it's a completely ludicrous sort of way to, to live your life. But we we accepted it. And now we accept that um, many of the things that we have depended on for years and years, like free free availability of uh, fossil fuels, these things may be coming to an end, and we have to adapt to new, new ways of, of uh, continuing our civilization. But I, I'm, I'm enough of an optimist in that sense that I think that... the the, the world will come through these things. I, I'm a great believer in human ingenuity. I think push to the pinch, push, push to the limit. We, we, we can be creative and we can come up with solutions to things. I mean, just, just by gradually making things more efficient, we can, um, we can do a great deal with what we already have on the Earth. We don't need any sort of magic um, new, new sort of technologies. We don't need fusion. I mean, it would be great if fusion came along, but there's a tremendous amount we could do um, simply by being clever with the way that we utilize energy now. Um, so I, I'm, I, hopefully I'm trying to sort of get at some of those issues, although it's sort of implicit in the background of Blue Remembered Earth. It's certainly not um, full of all that stuff in the foreground. And the other thing I wanted to... Sorry. Yeah, no, no, go
1: ahead. on. Go, no.
0: Well, what, one of the things that I... I mean, this goes, goes back to the comment you just made about um, possibly the rate of technological change is actually decelerating. And that's something that's been interesting me for a few years. And uh, particularly with, I mean, I, I have sort of interest in uh, aviation. And I was I, I thinking, you know, like aviation technology changed dramatically throughout the 20th century. And you went from biplanes uh, at the beginning of the century through to essentially the modern era of the jet airliner by, by sort of the early 1950s. And things have just slowed down. I mean, I think aircraft are more more efficient now. They're safer, but they don't go any faster. So they look more or less the same. And I found this um, this statement from Boeing um, somewhere on the internet where they said that they, you know, they that they're still making 747s, and they fully expect that people are still going to be flying 747s for decades to come. And nothing, well, you don't see that in science fiction very often. The idea that technologies just just stick around, and I think that's uh, something that. Science fiction often gets wrong, uh, despite abundant evidence to the contrary. I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, television did not displace wireless, Um, you know, the the Internet did not displace telephones or television. Things just stick around because they're good solutions. People still use bicycles. And I wanted to kind of hint at that in in Blue Remembered Earth. So, although the action is set 150 years in the future, there's lots of things that are still sort of familiar that I wanted to, to sort of put into the mix a sense that in some respects, the world looks more similar than you might expect given given one hundred and fifty years of of, um, of of progress and i and again that's something I, I think is is has not been reflected in in written science fiction perhaps to the, the degree that it should we're very fond of i mean science fiction writers love world building they, they love this idea of creating a completely imagined uh, environment a society from from scratch and I think they often in that process they often forget that You've got to leave room for the bits that will stick around, and um, you know that's actually things like uh, Judge Dredd, uh, the comic series, actually got that right because you know in Judge Dredd's future, the the, the, the buildings in his megacity, there were there were still lots of things left over from the 20th century, and then when Blade Runner came out. The, the, one of the things they got really, really got right in Blade Runner was the idea that although it's 2019 and there's flying cars, there's still going to be lots of old, clapped out old cars around, uh, as indeed there are in the real world. And I, so I, I wanted to get a little bit more of that into into Blue Remembered Earth, and not to feel that every single page had to be full of sort of shiny gosh technology.
1: But despite all of that, there are two ways in which this is a book that's about, uh, I think, I mean, I you know what it's about is whether it's up to you or up to your readers, I don't know. But there's, uh, there are ways in which this book really does seem to be about transformation, right? And not just in terms of the ultimate arc of the, tri- of the, of, of the trilogy. But in the one hand, the characters spend a great deal of time, uh, or at least a comparatively great deal of time, reflecting upon uh, human- humanity's culpability and responsibility to its ecosystem uh, having come out the other side of the great climate and environmental shift, right? Having come out of the yeah. species, the crash of species, the the rising of the sea levels, all of that kind of stuff, uh, and that's you that you do that on a micro level, right? Through uh, Jeffrey in his research on elephants, uh, something that was sort of striking to be reading your novel over the last few days with, with these stories coming out about the big uptick in, in elephant killings in Africa to supply ivory to Asia. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, I think one of the things that, that if you think about species, if you think about sort of megafauna and, and megafauna that, that we can see as having cognition levels that we feel really bad about things that we're doing to them elephants are a pretty good example of that and also one of the great victims uh, at least of their them and their relatives of human expansion globally Um, so you have that at a micro level on a very kind of emotional level you also have that at the the macro the philosophical level through the debates with the uh panspermiums uh and the notion of a of a it's a what a green effervescence am i getting the, the yes. terminology right so that humanity has a responsibility to extend life and, and in fact all earth life into space um almost in a sense as a kind of compensation for what we've done to it um uh so you have that kind of element that people are thinking through and broadways the philosophical implications of humanity's transformation of its environment. Uh, both in terms of our responsibility to other species and, and to the the blue remembered earth itself, uh, but also in terms of humanity's own transformation, its own adaptation to ecos- to to the changed ecosystem or to the ecosystem through primarily the 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 water faring uh, uh, civilization society that that yeah. maybe you can tell us a little bit about. So it's very much about that. Okay, well let's let's yeah. go with that. So.
0: Well, I. <laughs> As I said, when I started writing Blue Remembered Earth, I wanted to, I suppose, go off in a slightly different direction to some of the previous books. And I suppose one of the things I wanted to do was begin to articulate some of those ideas and perhaps, in a way, when I'm articulating them on the page, and I'm thinking about things like species-level responsibility, I'm actually thinking these things through for myself for the first time. It's a way of sort of arguing with myself and trying to, trying to see how I feel about them and what what side of the argument I come down on. And th- th- there's never really been the sort of scope for that in any of the previous books. I mean, you know, wildlife I don't think gets mentioned <laughs> in Revelation space. But I'm I'm really sort of deeply interested in wildlife. I'm, I'm very into. Um, um, you know, observation of nature on on the sort of local level where I live. I'm, I'm a passionate bird watcher. I you know I, I love sort of seeing the sort of the web of of, of living organisms as they interact in, in in my area. And I love studying things and I love learning little tidbits about nature. And I'm very um, upset by our treatment of of, of animals uh, historically. So. It's, As soon as elephants were in the mix, I knew that that stuff was going to kind of come out there in in the book. And it also, I mean, I always find that if you can set up opposing grand themes in a a narrative, um, you know, that's a good way to sort of lay the seed for some some useful conflict later in the storyline. And the idea that um, Jeffrey, he's, he's studying the elephants, but he's a pragmatist, he's a scientist. He's not really interested in these deeper philosophical questions about... Um, guilt and, and and whether we should protect the elephants by moving them off the planet. He's not interested in that. He just wants to get some papers out on and you know and get get the next research grant going. But uh, my, actually, my wife had been um, she'd spent a few weeks working uh, at an elephant rehabilitation center in uh, I think in Thailand. And she'd come back with lots of photographs and stories about elephants. Um, And that had all sort of soaked in on quite a deep level, I think, over the years with me. And we'd we'd always sort of watched uh, TV documentaries about elephant populations and then always enjoyed looking at elephants in in sort of uh, safari parks and and zoos and things. And it it all seemed a natural fit for the novel at the time. And and, and I'm kind of glad it's all in there because these themes then sort of organically then became... um, more and more important and themes that I really was glad that were there that I could then develop for the second novel. But I I think as a a writer, I'm not... I mean, I think you can probably tell where my sympathies lie in terms of, you know, I I, I think it's a bad idea to kill elephants. There's a controversial statement, you know, but... um, I, I'm not required as a writer to say whether the you know the, the panspermian initiative. This is something that I, uh, I allude to in this book. It's this, this kind of cult-like organisation who almost they almost want to export life into the universe, and they almost don't care if humanity goes along or not. They, they, they sort of feel this huge sense of of um, sort of pressing moral obligation to, to colonise the galaxy with living organisms. But I'm not sure if that's a good idea or not. And I, w- I was thinking about. You know, issues like the the question of whether we should terraform Mars or not. Do we have a right to introduce native organisms to another planet, or should we leave things as they are? And and as a writer, I'm far more interested in sort of balancing those arguments, looking at them from both sides, and coming down on one side of the coin or the other. And so for me, it's all you know, a large part of writing a book like Blue Remembered is just sort of thinking through these things for myself and seeing how how I how I evaluate the arguments.
1: Well, the other side of that, which is, and I think it's one of the things that makes we *Remembered Earth* so interesting uh, at the level of ideas, is the fact that you, you know, do throw these arguments out there. And I agree; it's it sometimes seems that we know where your sympathies lie, but you know, it gets us thinking about them. And you have, in fact, uh, you, know, you present multiple sides of the philosophical argument. The other side of that, though, which is closely connected with what we've just been talking about, is this idea that you articulate explicitly in the book, which is that um, the end point of rapid climate change uh, is potentially a moment of evolutionary change, both at the, not only at the biological level, but also at the technological and cultural level, comparable to the formation of the first cities, right? And the formation of human civilization as we know it. Uh, And I thought that was really interesting. So this isn't, you know, in a sense, you you say, well, this is normal for them. But on the other hand, you make it very clear in the novel that one way of thinking about the tremendous change in carrying capacity and the the sort of structure of the earth is a a moment of tremendous possibility and uncertainty about the future of, of humanity, Um, So I was hoping maybe you might elaborate a little bit on on that idea and the particular role that evolution and ideas about evolution, both at the biological and the cultural level, uh, play in in Blue Remembered Earth.
0: Well, there's a a statement in the book where the character Eunice is pontificating and she's basically just talking aloud while um, I think it's Jeffrey just trying to ignore her. And they're, they're looking down on Africa because they're coming down, coming down the space elevator. And she sort of goes off on this elaborate uh, spiel about the um, about these these sort of um, forcing events in human history. And 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 you're right, she she sort of articulates an argument that there was um, uh, a great uh, aridification, this uh, 5.9 year event, which is supposedly a real a real historical event that's been sort of um, uh, studied by. Um, i suppose paleontologists or, or ethnologists and and the idea is that this was um uh, until this event happened we had been we haven't really needed to 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 glom together and, and form cities but it forced us to abandon uh, earlier ways of living and we developed cities and of course with cities that you then get um, state-level organizations you get bureaucracy and, and and you know you can almost say well it's just a short hop and a skip then to to technology and space travel. So I, 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 I'm i always looking for those moments in science fiction where you can give the reader a violent lurch of perspective. And the, the idea that Eunice would... would posit the idea that really there's no significant change between, um, you know, humanity gets forced into building cities, and then a, sort of, a, an I being later we're on the moon, and then there's another one of these forcing events now, which is this glo- global climate change, which forces us to find new ways of coexisting, new ways of living together, new ways of utilizing energy. Well, I don't necessarily buy that as an idea, but it seemed an interesting um position for her to adopt, and it also gave me that that opportunity to 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 give the reader the, the sort of lurch of perspective the idea that in her view um you know eight thousand years or whatever is is nothing it's just a a blip in, in the sort of continuum so i'm i'm always sort of, i keep my eyes peeled for sort of moments like that where I can give the sort of reader a, um, a give them the opportunity to sort of step back and see things anew and where i I mean, do I believe that? Do I believe that climate change would uh, would force on us a new mode of living? I don't know. I mean, it, could be, it depends on how smartly we handle it. I mean, if we, you know, we could sort of muddle through and, and then carry on as uh, as we were with all the sort of imperfections in in society. Perhaps that's the best, rather than some sort of wrenching transition to a new social model but as a science fiction writer I don't really have to um, you know I don't have to come down strongly on one side or the other I can just play with these ideas in a very sort of neutral fashion and that's that I mean for me the, the, the much of the, the most interesting science fiction is written from that position of neutrality where the writer is sort of just sort of balancing these huge ideas almost like sort of spinning plates and seeing which one falls first.
1: Well, I do think that one thing that's you know, I've already alluded to this, that I found extremely compelling about Blue Remembered Earth is not simply that position of neutrality that you articulate. Uh, you just articulated to us. Um, but also, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, are very good at setting in motion uh, a set of changes or, or contingencies or future imaginaries where we get a very elaborate sense of world building right so there's and and this is a very elaborately built world right Uh, it's a great thought experiment in what uh, things might look like in a few centuries hence but then the understandings of the way the the ideological modes in which the characters understand that world uh, don't seem to have changed at all right they're they're simply kind of very Very crude or uh, crude is the wrong word because they're they could be quite sophisticated, but they're they 're fairly straightforward projections from the contemporary period uh, or they are essentially rehashes with a little bit of estrain- cognitive estrangement thrown in, but rehashes yeah. of of contemporary ideological debates and I felt that that was not going on here that you had thought very seriously about the the cultural and ideological effects on people of the world that you had created. Um, And perhaps it is that sense that, for the characters, this is a highly naturalized world. It is not a strange world at all to them. And so uh, the way that they would parse it would have to be uh, natural and objective, you know, natural for them. It would have to be cognitively. I'm now going to repeat myself. (laughs) Um,
0: I know know exactly what you mean. I mean, mean, to go back to this Issue of world building, which is very contentious. I don't sit and build a world. I write a novel, and the, the sort of implied world, if you like, just develops organically as I write it. And I'm constantly tweaking things, I'm constantly putting things into the mix and take them out. And then if I'll introduce something, it'll have a knock on effect. It'll sort of ripples of it will spread through the story, then I go back and, and sort of try and adjust the characters accordingly. But I don't sit out and sort of Sort of mechanistic intentions of creating a world from the from the outset, it never works like that for me. It's just not the way I operate. And it, I, I suppose one thing I try and avoid. I, well, one thing I, I I do consciously try and do is make sure that the characters are fully embedded in the imagined world. So they see things that they are living in this world. They, to them, the most. Um, Miraculous technologies are, are commonplace, bread and butter, part of their discourse. So they're not impressed by them, and they don't sort of stop every five minutes and talk about how, how this technology works. And I think science fiction that does that. Um, it's one of the shortest ways to making things feel artificial and stilted. Um, so I always I try, as far as possible, I try and, as you say, give the characters just enough cognitive estrangement for it to feel as if they really are part of this imagined landscape but the, the the reader also has to be able to navigate their way through the story. So if you have something, I mean, many of the characters in Blue and Married Earth are completely uh, comfortable with the idea that they can sort of project their own bodies out, out, you know, they can project their personalities out of their bodies into another recipient, another receptacle, be it another human being or a robot. And... I'd been sort of thinking about this for a long time in terms of the, mecha- the some mechanics of how you re- might actually do this using um, sort of very sophisticated telepresence technology. And it seemed to me that it would almost be inevitable that something like that would would come along in, in 150 years. But to the characters, it would be completely boring and, and uh, simply a means to an end, a means of having a conversation with someone, so they wouldn't dwell on it. But I have to the reader has to understand the mechanics of this system, they have to understand the implicit limitations, so there's a challenge there for the writer, it's how, they, how the writer gets across to the reader the fact that this technology isn't magic, it does have limitations, it works according to rules, but the characters are not going to dwell on it, um, and for me that it, it's a challenge, but it's also, I suppose, when I get it right, or when I, when I think I'm in, in the process of getting it right, it's one of the bits of science fiction I most enjoy. Uh, and it, it can be really off-putting for for the the uninitiated. They start reading a science fiction novel like *Blue Remembered Earth*, and there'll be a sort of throwaway reference on page three to some some you know the characters will say "i tuned or something, and what, what does this mean? And I think the the, the sort of there, there are two readers. I think one one reader confronted with such a thing will just give up and say, "I can't I can't read this. It's full of made up made up words that are not defined in context." The, the other reader will say, "Well, I I." I it 's science fiction, I know how it works. If I persevere, um, things will become clear before very long and uh, you know, if, because i 've been reading science fiction since I was a kid, that to me is just a natural mode of of reading that you just take things on trust for, for you know hopefully not for chapters on end, but things will become will sort of settle into place and it, and that 's part of the the challenge of the world building, if you like, is that you, you, you have to sort of drip feed these sort of things into the plot you don 't want to um, ran them all into the first chapter. I mean, I, I deliberately, um, the, the, the way the novel begins, after the sort of brief preliminaries, we're, we're at a funeral, and I wanted it to be um, a, a recognizable human gathering. I didn't want it to be, um, you know, lots of people doing something incomprehensible on the moon in, in sort of four dimensions. So I thought, well, you know, what if these people are just gathering at the, at the family home on Earth, It's not, they're not out in space or something, and they're not doing anything weird, they're just gathering to, to, to sort of um, dispose of some ashes. And it, it seemed to me that that was a good way to anchor the, the reader early in the story and say, look, trust me, these aren't, these aren't weird characters from the ninth dimension, they're just human beings. They're, they're part of a family with all, all sort of internal politics of a large family, is it, sort of um, hopefully implicit in that scene, and... I I hope that there's enough there for the reader to take things on trust then and just accept that um, that if if something weird does intrude into the story, um, then all will become clear before very long.
1: Well, as you say, it's a a very familiar trope. I mean, it's one of the defining tropes of science fiction, and yet one of the things I I liked about your neologisms is that all of them uh, make etymological sense, right? So, you know, evoking, for example, were clearly a deriv- derivation of evoking. And what are you doing? You're evoking something uh, by producing a particular image, shared image, or, 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 or individual image in well, augmented reality. It is so, that. Well, so
0: yeah, I, I, I mean, I was looking at, I was trying to work, work out this. And is it evoking or was it sub vocalization? Because it's sort of three years since I wrote it. Okay. I, I, I probably couldn't prove it one way or the other. But mm. yes, I, I do try and not. I mean, there's always a sort of implicit logic to these things, which hopefully makes them easier for the reader to swallow, I think. Mm
1: -hmm. Or maybe we can go off on our own incorrect uh, assumptions about their etymology and they still make sense.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, mean, you know, the author is dead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was very uh, disappointed, though, to learn that uh, even in this world of much more advanced Wireless communications, uh, augmented reality, uh, biological and nano engineering, that people still care about uh, journal impact and article impact factor. That was very disturbing to me.
0: Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wrote that, and I think it was, you know, within a few weeks I was reading about this. Uh, there, there's a whole bunch of. Um, Agitated academics out there who are sort of trying to move to a new a new model of scientific publishing out there that you know a sort of open-source model that gets away from the The sort of tired old peer review system, so uh, it's, it's probably a bit of a stretch to imagine that uh, 150 years in the future people still submit papers to nature the way I used to <laughs> but it, it, it enabled me to position Jeffrey as a, as a You know, if if he's doing the same sort of stuff I used to do as a scientist, I can believe in him. If if he has to read papers that he's a bit bored by and do peer review and sort out articles that he's not that interested in, then that that all sort of feels very familiar and I can sort of believe in him as a character.
1: And that is the the sort of wonderful mixing of not only the old and the new, but the very mundane with the very wondrous uh, that I think is a a, a common thread in in this particular novel. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and uh, giving great us pleasure. a great deal to think about and a great deal of uh, background about yourself and your ideas and your work.
0: Well, th- thank you so much for the, for the kind words on the book. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate the sort of level of analysis you've brought to it. it mm-hmm. It's really sort of uh, – uh, it's not something I take lightly, and uh, I do appreciate it.
1: Well, um, thank you, and I hope that we can talk again sometime soon.
0: Thanks a lot, Dan. All thank right. you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: You've been listening to Alistair Reynolds discuss his latest book, Blue Remembered Earth, on the New Books in Science, Fiction, and Fantasy podcast. This episode was recorded Thursday, September 6, 2012. So long.